Be seated. Amen. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 20, verse 29, and go into chapter 21, uh, verse 17. So we're going to be Matthew chapter 20. And as you turn there, we're reintroducing, reorienting ourselves to Matthew. For the last kind of two years, we've been dipping in and out, and we're committed over the next uh, six, eight, uh, maybe 12 months to, to finish it finish it up. And uh, Matthew's Gospel is all about discipleship. It's uh, what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus? And it's a teaching gospel. It's meant to teach us who he is and what does it mean to, to follow him. And we're going to look at over the next several weeks, Matthew 20, verse 29 through 22, 14, because that's kind of one large chunk. And it might be helpful to remember that the, you know, the chapters, um, we didn't really have chapters into the Bible until about 1200. And then the verse numbers were kind of solidified as we have them now in about 1500. So they were originally written um, without those. And you would have certain uh, literary or auditory cues so you would know you're moving into another scene. It's very similar like when you watch uh, television shows or movies, they'll do certain scene shifts so you can tell. All right, we're, we're, we're moving into another scene. And, and uh, all of the books of the Bible have those different cues. And I think from 20, uh, verse 29 to 22, 14 is meant to be one large block, like one uh, sustained scene. And what Matthew is going to give us, because the way he tries to teach us, he knows that we need uh, learning environments where we, we sit and we're being taught. And then we need living environments where we're enacting and living out and responding to life. And so he's a master teacher. So he gives us both. He gives us teaching and he gives us training. He gives us learning and he gives us life and they go back and forth. But we're meant to learn something in all of those. And so in this section, he gives us three encounters with Jesus. So there, there's these encounters and they're meant to teach us something about who he is. And then he tells us three different stories that are meant to teach us about how we respond to him? What does, uh, what's the appropriate response? How do we live out the life of faith? So who he is, how do we respond? And in this whole section, he's giving his church the main things they need to be faithful in a hostile world. So that's what we're going to look at. What I want to do uh, this morning is we're going to look at the first two of those three encounters, and we're going to ask, all right, what are we supposed to know about him? And then how are we supposed to respond to him? And so let's pick up, we'll read from 20, 29, and then we'll go through 21, verse 17. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the, the, fowl of the, the foal of the beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had told them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and all that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered into the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you not read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So here you get this cycle of three different encounters, and what Matthew is doing is he's summarizing for us the picture that he's painted all the way up until chapter 21 of who Jesus is. That core question in 21.10 is a question over this whole section of the gospel. Who is this? And he gives us these three little snapshots that Jesus is the, the merciful high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, he is the mighty or the, the modest, the humble king. And then he's the mighty prophet who speaks in word, the authoritative word. So he's priest, king, prophet. So let's look at priest and king first. The first story, 20, 29 to 34, that snapshot. He's the merciful high priest. Now, a few months ago, we looked at this story in the Gospel of Mark. And it's, it's instructive to kind of compare. It's interesting to compare how each of the Gospel writers use uh, this story and other stories that they share in common. You know, they're, in essence, they're preachers. And so every time they're telling a story, they have a specific intent for how they're telling the story. That's one of our goals. So every time I tell a story, normally there's a specific intention behind it. Sometimes it's hard to tell. And Cynthia gets a little nervous and is like, all right, where are you going? I'm not seeing. And most times, I just trust me, we'll get there eventually. And then if we don't, you know, it was a fail, but the attempt was there. So like you start hearing the story about the origins of chocolate chip cookies and you might think, ah, where are we going with this? We're, we're trying to get somewhere. And so you look, all right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all have this story, but it's fascinating to see how they're using it. So like Luke, he, he paints this symphony of salvation and he's the doctor who wants to celebrate salvation as the great healing that Jesus brings. And Luke loves to take pairs and show how these seemingly contrasting pairs both experience uh, salvation. So you have like Zechariah and Mary, you have Jesus and John, and then he uses a story to contrast Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus, two people on the total opposite ends of the social spectrum, but neither of them can see Jesus, and both experience salvation. 
The way, um, so Luke's is like the priestly gospel. He's bringing healing to the world. And then Mark uh, uses this story, and Jesus is kind of the great king, and Mark gives this cycle of 13 different stories of people who are living under the shadow of death. And in every story, Jesus comes and he, he brings victory over the effects of, of sin and death that are over them. And this story is the culmination of that. And then what Matthew's doing is he's using it to teach and contrast. You have the, the story of the two disciples right before it that we didn't read who come seeking earthly power. And then these two humble disciples who come seeking healing and hope. But Matthew's using this story to summarize all that he's told us about what does it mean to come to Jesus in need and to come as our, our high, high priest. He summarizes uh, everything about Jesus' healing ministry. So let's actually bring up the next. Go one, one or two down, and we'll see the different things that he summarizes uh, really quick that he uses in brief. First, he's going to tell us, all right, here's the kind of people that Jesus helps he helps the needy. You have these two blind beggars. They're weak, they're wounded, they're outcast. And this is who he comes to help and heal. It's the needy. At, the, at uh, Andrew Sadullo's funeral on, on Friday, one of the songs we sang was, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired. I'm weak, I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light, take my hand. And as I was singing, I was singing, the, the people who sing that song are the people who Matthew says, these are the needy. If you can resonate with that song, is I'm tired, I'm wounded, I'm weary. That's who Jesus comes to help and to heal. It's the needy who come to him and then notice the way that they approach him. They come in, in, with urgency and in faith. They come urgent. They're not going to be deterred. They hear that is Jesus, and this is their only chance to encounter him. And so they cry out. They make a scene. All the gospel writers talk about how the crowds in different places try to keep them quiet. I mean, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is moving towards the most important week in the history of the world. They want them to be quiet because he doesn't have time to deal with them at this moment, but they are not going to be deterred. Their song at that moment might be, we ain't too proud to beg. And they are going to beg and cry out. They come urgently in faith. And part of the irony that you see all through Matthew's gospel is that those around them often respond discouragingly. Uh, the people who are needy and need to cry out to him often are, are around others or in context that discourage them from coming. That's part of Mark's irony that even the disciples whose job it was to bring people to Jesus are pushing them away. And you hear the crowd saying, stop to be quiet. They discourage them. And then look in verse 32. Notice how Jesus responds to them. He responds personally. He stops. You know, don't stop on him stopping. You know, he doesn't move too quickly. He's got important things to do, but he's got time where he stops. And then he calls them, and then he addresses them personally. And when we looked at this story in, in August or September, we really kind of keyed in on that question, what do you want me to do for you? It's one of the most profound and powerful questions you can be asked. And just imagine you stand before Christ himself and he says, what do you want me to do for you? 
He's personal in his engagement. And then Matthew throws in this beautiful touch where it says, in pity or in compassion. You know, the Greek word there is his bowels moved. His, 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 it's, uh, kind of the conception was that your emotions weren't in your heart, they were kind of in your belly. And his bowels are moved. He has, he's moved with pity and compassion. And you can see this often in his healing ministry where he's up and he sees and he's moved with compassion because the people are like sheep without a shepherd and fumbling around. And he sees them and he's moved with compassion. And he has this beautiful touch that Matthew throws in that he touches their eyes. He doesn't just speak words, he touches, and his healing is healing hands and healing voice, speech and touch. He touches them. And then notice the result in 34. The result is healing and discipleship. They are healed, and then they follow him. That's the point all throughout Matthew. What does it mean to faithfully follow him? They experience the healing, and then they, they follow and you notice the key to their faith is they asked for alms or they asked for money from anyone who they thought was just a normal person. But when Jesus comes around, they ask for something completely different. They know he can bring help and hope at a whole nother level. They don't ask for what a normal person can give. They ask for cure. They ask for healing. And this comes from who they think he is. They're the first in the Gospel of Matthew to cry out that he's the son of David. Two titles, Lord, which is a regal, honorable term, uh, Lord, and then son of David. This is a tag for you're the Messiah. You're the one, and we have our hope that when the Messiah comes, he will uh, give sight to the blind and speech to the dumb, and he'll, the deaf will hear and the lame will walk. And so we're making a confession that we believe this is who you are. And so they cry out to him. And so what Matthew's painting this picture for us, and he wants us to see, all right, let me summarize who Jesus is as the merciful high priest. He's a merciful high priest who comes to help the hurting and the needy and the broken and to bear our iniquities. But we have to come. We have to come to him. We come as needy. Uh, we come humble. Uh, he comes to us in mercy. But what we'll see is moving 21. He doesn't just come in mercy. See, his mercy is not just a blanket acceptance of any and all. His mercy is going to be costly. It will cost him his blood, and his mercy will cost us our sin and our pride. But his kindness is an open invitation to turn to him in repentance and faith. Come to him in your moments of need to find mercy freely offered and grace fully given. So the first thing we're supposed to learn is that he's a merciful high priest, and we come to him when we uh, experience that. We're all, that's part of the irony of, especially uh, Mark brings this out and, and Luke, that everyone around him is blind. The only question is, do you realize it? And do you come to him? But then as we move into 21, we see these are no just ordinary beggars. These are, are actually two people who are going to be part of this great procession that's going to usher in the king back into his city and his throne. Now we move into chapter 21, and now we move into the real drama of the book. The whole rest of the book is, in essence, this last week and what it's set up. That's why it's so important that they set up the announcement of saying, Lord, son of David, son of David. This is David's city. That's David's temple. And his rightful heir, the ruler to the throne, is, is coming back. 
So on the one hand, he is the merciful high priest who has compassion and sympathizes with us and bears our weakness. But now he's moving in the second thing. He's coming as the, the king, the humble king, the modest king. And what they're meant to learn here is that he's both Lord and he's Savior. He's merciful. He's mighty. He is God and he is man. Divinity, humanity, king, uh, servant, but also ruler. And so notice as he comes in and they respond, they are meant to, how they're supposed to respond is they're supposed to respond in obedience and worship. Look in chapter 21, really verse 6 is the key to this section. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They respond in worship. And then everyone else, especially the children, respond in, or they respond in obedience, and then they respond in worship. The celebration, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. Save us. Our Savior is here. He's coming. So they're, they're obedience and, and worship. Now there's a big turn here in chapter 21, and I'm intrigued by the fact that all right, Jesus is now beginning to work out a very conscious, intentional strategy. Um, up until this point in his ministry, he's primarily been avoiding open and direct confrontation. So like when John was uh, arrested, Jesus withdrew from Judea into Galilee. And then he warns people over and over when they're making these messianic declarations. Uh, he warns them not to say anything, especially in his early ministries. It's one of the kind of mysteries you read through Mark and over and over. It's, this, it's almost like he wants to keep who he is a secret. There's people who say, I know who you are. And then Jesus tells them, be quiet. Don't tell anyone yet. So I was like, why is he doing that? And so he's been uh, pulling back. He's often kept himself in the shadows and kept his messianic claims secret. But now, in chapter 21, he enters into Jerusalem, and it's like it's on. We uh, started watching the, the Rocky films over Christmas break, and there's something energetic or you get an adrenaline rush when you hear the ding, ding, ding of the bell. I guess you hear it when you're just watching. If it's not really you, it might have a different feeling. But in one sense, 21 is, is the bell ringing. And now it, it, it is on. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he's going to deliberately engage in this whole series of scenes and actions that can't help but to provoke the powers that be and bring out angry responses from the scribes and chief priests and Pharisees and religious leaders. And I find it pretty interesting when you read you know, through Matthew. Matthew 21 and through 27 uh, probably makes me more uncomfortable than any other section in the Gospels. So I know we have all types of different personality uh, tests. Maybe we could develop, uh, this might be our Trinity fundraising strategy. We could uh, develop the personality test where you re read through the Gospel of Matthew and which elements do you really resonate with, which elements bore you, and then which elements make you uncomfortable. But if you're, a, uh, you know, if you're uncomfortable with conflict or conflict averse or maybe a nine on the Enneagram and see yourself as a peacemaker, this whole section makes you uneasy because Jesus is very intentionally doing things to provoke. I mean, this is not how you win friends or influence people. 
And so he's going to arrange to ride into the capital city at the most intense time of the year on a donkey, surrounded by adoring crowds who are hailing him as the Messiah, the son of David. And you remember how murderously angry King Herod got when the wise men came asking about the king, the one who's been born king of the Jews, where is he? And then here he is about 33 years later coming in and the whole city's making the announcement. In fact, there's a little uh, uh, interesting back and forth. Look in verse 10 of 21. You know, the ESV translated, the whole city was stirred up. That word literally is the whole city quaked. It's the, the word for the earthquake. And the last time he used that, the whole city was quaked was when the wise men came asking, where is the king of the Jews? And it happens here. Actually, it happens four, four times in in the gospel. Happens when the wise men come and announce where's the king. Happens here when the whole city is singing, celebrating the son of David has come. It happens in all of creation when he dies on the cross. And then it happens the fourth time when the tomb, uh, the stone rolls away and he rises again. And so here he is, the whole city is, is quaking because the king is entering in. And then Jesus goes straight to the temple and he begins to flip over tables and drive people out. He claims that this is his house. You know what kind of claim you're making when you come into someone's house and start rearranging the furniture? You're saying you have a certain authority here. And he comes in, and so he has chosen this time for his confrontation. His time of silence is over. The time of withdrawal is over. His hour has come, and he's going to show them in the world who he really is. And it is intentional, and it is deliberate. He is coming to fulfill the scriptures and the point of his life. And he's making a series of radical claims that everyone in Jerusalem has to decide we will either crown him or kill him. There is no middle ground. He is either who he says he is and we bow down or we fight against. We either crown or kill. There is no neutrality anymore. No more indifference. Either accept or destroy. He's coming to his own. And you know, a couple things that I think Matthew wants us to kind of wrestle with. He's saying, right, you, for 20 chapters I've walked you uh, with Jesus as you've walked through the world, as he's taught and he's healed and he's engaged and he's called people to follow him. But now we come to the dividing moment where you have to choose. You either bow down as king or you fight against him as your enemy. But there's no neutrality. You have to choose. And part of the irony here is that Jesus now is accepting all of these titles and he's accepting their praise. This is a very real public coming out party where he's letting it be known who he is. A couple of things just find interesting about this is, uh, you know, this might be a good lesson for everyone who is a conflict avoider. You know, he's been avoiding it up until this point, but it's not because of fear, but it's a strategy. He's very intentional in it. And then another thing to think about is how Jesus is both merciful and he's mighty. He is Lord and he is Savior. He is merciful priest, but he's also the mighty king. And you can't uh, separate the two. You have to take him for all of him. You know, it'd be kind of like if uh, you told Cynthia, you know, I really love the Cynthia, but the Bailey, I don't really like the Bailey's got to go. Uh, you can come here as Cynthia, but you can't come as Bailey. Well... You, you got to take the whole thing. You can't segment Jesus. He is Lord and Savior, priest and king, and you can't separate the two. 
And then notice he doesn't just ride in on the donkey, he rides in on the praises of the people, especially all the children. You know, I was thinking about how interesting it is to see the perspective. I want to be like to see this from the children's eyes because they're all around. You see the kids running and weaving through the people and singing and celebrating. And it's the, the noise of the children that upsets the scribes and Pharisees in the temple as they're singing these songs of, of celebration. I thought, you know, I'm not a... A, uh, I don't know if you want to, maybe a creative episode of the next iteration of the Jesus film or the Chosen, or maybe they do this on Superbook or something, but it would be kind of interesting to see this whole scenario from the perspective of the kids' eyes. Like, what do they see? That'd be kind of fun if you had like a, a Greco-Roman child who maybe his uh, dad is one of the Roman soldiers who had been stationed there. And then you had another child who was maybe a faithful uh, Jewish boy who had been gr- trained up his whole life in the scriptures. And they're watching all of this and being interested, right, how do, what do they see? How do they respond? The little Greco-Roman boy might start laughing when he sees him on a donkey. <laughs> So the, ha, look at that on a donkey. That doesn't make any sense. How are you singing and celebrating? Behold, your king is coming on a donkey. Kings don't ride donkeys. Donkeys are work animals. Donkeys are, they're not pretty. They're not regal. They're not royal. They're not powerful. That's not how kings ride into town. He might let me say, let me tell you how kings ride into town. You remember when my daddy's Praetorian came into town? Remember what we rode in on? Remember how everybody sp- uh, spread and bowed their knee? We rode in on things with might and power. <laughs> this is not how you're, you're singing Hosanna, which means save us. You don't cry out for salvation to someone who rides a donkey. You need the might, the army, the power, the strength. It'd be interesting to see how he thinks about that. And part of that, I mean, we kind of need to feel the shock of, all right, he's riding on a donkey. That's just strange. I mean, maybe modern parallels might be something like, uh, you know, a couple months ago when it was on the news that Elon Musk was coming to SpaceX. And I don't know what car he drove, but if he, like, you know, drove a Corolla over to SpaceX. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, nothing against a Corolla. I mean, we're in the market for one, you know, maybe. But uh, you might expect him to drive a little something different. And the same thing here from the Greco-Roman perspective. This is absurd. What's he doing riding that? And I think one of the things Matthew wants to teach us is that often there's this mismatch between what you expect and what you get. You know, there's a mismatch between, you know, what you want and what God provides They would want the mighty king coming in all of his strength and power. But often our expectations and our real needs aren't the same thing. You know, what we think we need is almost always too shallow. And what God normally gives us is so much deeper. He exceeds our expectations, but in the end, but often in the short run, we can't see it. You know, think about what they might have thought even just that week, their experience. Oh, well, yes, he's coming. He's coming to save us. He's coming to rule. And then six, seven days later, he's dead. That didn't work. He must have failed. Or did he? You know, what he gives, what we expect. Reminded of a 
fun, funny story from a, it was a country pastor who told about the story and it was about the 80s, but he was in this kind of area where uh, the, hosp the local hospital would often call him if there was ever somebody in a crisis and needed someone to pray for. And in the middle of the night, one time he got a call that, you know, there was somebody who was kind of panicking and he needed to come and, and pray with this man. And he got there and the man was relieved and told him, oh, well, thanks for coming, but I actually don't need you anymore. They mixed up the x-rays and those weren't mine. And, uh, so all of a sudden, he thought, well, I, I don't need to think about my mortality anymore. And the pastors, I wasn't really thinking. If I would have been thinking, I would, actually, I was kind of glad. I was like, okay, I'm going back home. But I probably should have stopped and said, well, everybody who comes in here is going to die one day. Are you ready? And so he thought, I, I don't need you anymore. And so here... I would have been a shock. But notice, I think with a shock for the Jewish boy, that little Jewish boy would have probably had a different shock. See, he might have laughed at the little Greco-Roman boy who thought kings only come in might and power and says, oh, no, you're, you're missing all of the symbolism. You're missing, you're missing the whole point. See, donkeys are tied to echoes in Genesis 49 when Jacob promised to his son Judah that the scepter would never depart from him. It was connected to a donkey, so it's, it's symbolic of, of the line of Judah who's going to come. And you remember Gideon, after he defeated the Philistines and set up uh, his 70 sons, he put them all on donkeys. But what he was actually doing was not taking on the responsibility of kingship, but wanted all of the perks. Or donkeys have echoes from our first king and the way he was found as he was searching for his father's donkey. And actually, do you see the road? You're missing the point of the road. Because when David fled Jerusalem, he took two donkeys and he had to flee from Absalom and the road he took as he started here in the city went across the Kidron and went up the Mount of Olives and Jesus he's actually riding those two donkeys coming in reverse as David's son back in to take his throne and maybe there's some echoes of when Jehu rode in on a donkey to drive out all of Ahab the most wicked of all the king's uh, abominations that he put in the temple but he'll say, but the echo here that Matthew points out is this is from Zechariah 9. This is our king coming, riding on a donkey, humble. But what's a mystery to me, he might say, is that in Zechariah 9, the king comes after this, this lengthy battle where he's crushed Tyre and Sidon and Ashkelon and Gaza because they've been raping and pillaging and plundering. And he goes out on his horse of war to subdue the enemies. And then he rides back peacefully on the donkey. So what I don't know is, is, has he already conquered and he's coming after he's conquered? Or where, where are the enemies that he's going to, to conquer? And of course, if there was another little boy who was from the country, he might laugh at them and say, oh, you city boys, that's not the amazing thing about this. The amazing thing is that he's on the donkey. He's on the colt. That's a baby colt. And anybody who knows anything about animals knows you just can't get up on a baby colt and ride it, especially around all of these people. You can't jump on them and expect to ride it. They have to be broken. So what amazes me is that he's even able to ride this thing, and it's not throwing him off everywhere, hee-hawing and running all up and down with all the commotion. That's the amazing thing. You might think I'm being a little fanciful there, but actually I was reading in uh, Don Carson, his commentary, and he says this. He says about the miracle in the midst of the excited crowd, an unbroken young animal remains totally calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature and stills the storm. Therefore, this event points to the peace 
and the consummation of the kingdom. And so maybe that little country boy might say the real miracle is that Jesus didn't have to break that animal. He's the Lord of nature. He's the Lord of all. And under his hand, everything moves to a place of peace and harmony. That animal knows who its real master is. And all through the story, you see these different foreshadowings of the complete healing he's going to come. And if Matthew was here, he might smile and say, think about Isaiah 11, 6 and 9, where the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. And they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And they might smile and say, well, what's up with the palm branches? And he might quote Psalm 96:12, where the trees will rejoice and sing and celebrate the redemption that the Messiah comes. And even as the wave, the palm branches, all of creation is joining into the celebration of the full restoration that the king is coming to bring. So here we see, you know, what, is, what does it mean for us? I think a couple things it means for us. One, it means that the salvation he brings often is surprising. It's not necessarily the salvation we think we need, but as the king is coming into his temple, he's coming to deal with the ultimate enemy that we all need to be freed from, and that's sin and death. The first thing that this story tells us is the way we follow him is that we need to be reconciled to him and have our sins dealt with. And that's what we celebrate and acknowledge every Sunday when we take communion. He's providing the salvation we most need, not the one we most expect. But then underneath the surface, I think secondly, it's giving this beautiful picture that Jesus is going to bring the restoration of all things. And that he's not looking for power to be served, but to serve and proclaim to the whole world that one day sickness, death, poverty, oppression, it's all going to be ended as he comes. You know, one of our taglines here is we talk about what mission is. Mission is joining Jesus as he makes all things new. So joining him as all of creation sings and celebrates. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your grace and mercy. We thank you for these two pictures that are painted for us here. We ask that you help us to know you as these things. So I pray for anyone who's come in here this morning and that they need to know you as the merciful high priest. They can sympathize with the song that they're tired, they're weak, they're weary, they're wounded. So I pray that you would help them by faith to come. And I pray for anyone here that we need to know that you are the mighty king. You come and uh, we joyfully, humbly turn our lives over to you. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. You know, this is the beginning of the week that ultimately will culminate at the cross. And on the night before the cross comes, the night that he was betrayed, he brought his disciples with him. He said, this is what it means to faithfully follow me. And this is more of the symbolism of what I'm going to do uh, for you. And he took the, the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread represents my body. It's broken for you.